This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Hello, and welcome to SuperAge. My name is David Harry Stewart. I'm the founder of Aegist. At SuperAge, we help you live better and become the best version of yourself. And who doesn't want a SuperAge? Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker, the dashboard to your inner health. Go to insidetracker.com slash Aegist. Save 20% on all their products today. Welcome to episode 83 of the SuperAge podcast. It is great to have you with us. This will be dropping on May the 18th. 2022. Today on the show, we're going to do a repeat episode with Dr. Mark Goulston. Dr. Goulston is a psychiatrist, and he specializes in helping us get along better with those around us, including the people we're married to and also including ourselves. This is one of the most commented episodes we've ever run, and based on what's been going on in the country the last few days, um, I thought, yeah, maybe we should learn how to get along with each other a little better. So we're going to get with uh, Dr. Goulston in just a moment. Uh, news update. Uh, this last week, I was in New York City, where I lived for a long time, and I haven't, I haven't lived there in about 15 years, maybe. Um, but I, you know, previous to COVID times, I used to go there quite frequently. And New York is really an extraordinary place. It's just such an extraordinarily vital, like constantly reinventing this this energetic there's really no other place in the world like it and I've, I've been to a lot of places i live different cities but new york is really a class unto itself and i you know some of the things i was noticing there was of course new york took a real hit from covid um it was really tough there but boy new york is back like full on and it's fantastic and it's true it can, it can be a tough city to live in i lived there for 25 years i know about that but living there, you know, the New Yorkers, they, they like to complain about New York. Um, and maybe everyone complains about New York. I don't know. I think there's so much amazing stuff there. Like, personally, I think the New York City subway is a national treasure. It's just an incredible thing. It runs very well. It's clean. And you get to see all manner of different people on the subway car. And everybody gets along. It's amazing. And the parks are, like, greener than ever. There seem to be more than than ever. Um, it's, uh, you know, the whole Brooklyn waterfront, my gosh, is just completely, um, utterly transformed from when I was even there like a few years ago. So um, a little funny story, though, we were trying to come back from New York. And I say trying, because what happened was, uh, we got on the plane on Monday night, all good, thunderstorm comes in. And what happens is 800 flights, which is all the westbound traffic out of all the New York airports were canceled that evening. So um, that meant that there were no flights the next day. Everything was booked. So we had to stay an extra two days, um, which was, um, you know, a little initially a little weird, but um, it was fine. We stayed at the Ace Hotel in Brooklyn, which, um, hey, um, big thumbs up, Ace Hotel in Brooklyn, beautiful place. Uh, but one thing that I learned was we arrived a little late and the overheads were full. So they were like, oh, we'll gate check your bag. And I thought, okay, you know, here, gate check the bag. 
But what happens when you gate check your bag and your flight's canceled? They take your bag. You don't get it back. (laughs) It stays in some sort of like luggage limbo and, um, you know, it gets sent on to wherever you're going, whether you're going there or not. So that was a little bit of an irritation, but, um, you know, fortunately, the ho- right next to the hotel, there was Marshall's. And I walked into Marshall's and I, you know, got myself some socks, some underwear, or a T-shirt and some gym shorts, all for the great price of $32. And, you know, I was good to go. So no problems. Um, but never again. I'm never, never let the suitcase out of my sight again. Um, so we're going to get with Dr. Mark Goulston in just a second after a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is the dashboard to your inner health. It is an indispensable part of my health and wellness. It empowers me to take responsibility for where my health and wellness is at. It's science-backed. They test 43 of my blood-based biomarkers. They tell me, not so much for average people, but what do they feel is the most optimal range for me, and then what can I do about it? It's a food-based program, food first, supplements second. Um, If there's anything really out of range, I'll get an alert. It says, see my doctor right away, which I do. I always share the results with my doctor just to keep him in the loop. The results are very easy to read. I look at them on my app. Anything that I don't understand is explained in the backup information. You know, for the first time in my life, I have real knowledge of my more or less day-to-day inner health based on my blood test results, and I know what they mean, and I know how they affect my health. Um, It's it's really invaluable. So if you would like to be empowered with self-knowledge around your inner health, go to insidetracker.com slash ageist. You'll save 20% on all their products. Hey, Mark, how are you today? I'm good, Dave. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you. So you have an interesting background, um, and you 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 know in some books you're very well known for um, promoting the idea of of listening, the skill of listening, um, because of your you know your career. But I I can we just sort of walk people through how did you get to where you are today? So here's the backstory, um, and everybody has a backstory, an origin story, and one of the things that Probably the my greatest accomplishment personally is that I dropped out of medical school twice and I finished. And I didn't drop out to see the world, to go try being a musician. I think I had untreated depression. And so what would happen is I was passing everything. I'd highlight every book in yellow, hoping I would absorb it, but I didn't absorb it. And so I took a leave of absence and worked in blue collar jobs that I just absolutely loved. And I, and I romanticized to this day. One of my favorite ones was I worked for a liquor distributing company. And in Boston, I would have a van and I would go around to bars and I'd go around to liquor stores and I'd set up the, uh, the displays in the windows. I'd, I'd negotiate with the, with the barkeep and, South Boston, I'll give you an extra neon sign for your basement if you put this neon sign up in your bar for a month. So and then and then I'd be climbing ladders, seeing dead rat skeletons uh, behind the uh, old these old bars. And I loved it. And then I get to go home and, you know, the day was over and I just repeated the next day. But I loved all the different people I met. And and I 
and I think they like speaking to me. I, 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 apparently, people don't feel that I talk down to them, and it's not something I'm aware of, but it's certainly one of my values is to not talk down to people. Everybody deserves respect. So anyway, I do that, and my mind comes back to a blue-collar level, which is not really you know ready for prime time in med school. So I come back and I, uh, after a year off, and then my mind kind of leaves me again. And I'm feeling depressed, but I'm passing. So I ask for another leave of absence. So I didn't know this, but the med school loses money every time a, a student uh, takes off because they lose matching funds. So the second time I wanted to take time off, I meet with the dean of the school. I don't remember the meeting, but I get a call from the dean of students who cares more about not matching funds, but students, not wanting them to fall through the cracks. And as you read in the newspaper, there's a real epidemic of burnout, uh, medical student suicide, doctor suicide. So even though I felt all alone with those negative feelings, I'm guessing there were a number of people in my school who felt that. So I remember meeting with the dean of students. He called me, he said, I have a letter from the main dean. Please come in, Mark. So I get there. And he says, read the letter. And the letter says, from the main dean who cares about losing money, I met with Mr. Goulston. We talked about alternate careers, and I'm advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw. So I asked uh, the dean of students, what does this mean? And he said, you've been kicked out. And I kind of cratered in front of him. I remember I sort of doubled over, and I'm not a particularly religious or spiritual person. People will say I am because I'm reasonably empathic. And I felt something wet on my cheekbones and I thought it was blood. So I kept touching my cheekbones with my fingers and I kept looking at my hands and it wasn't blood, it was tears. But, uh, but I come from, and I come from a background where you're only worth what you can do in life. And if you can't do much, you're not worth much. So you got to figure out my mindset at that point. And this is what the uh, Dean of Students says. And, and what's kind of interesting is I've been trying to figure this out for a while, but something I guess I had done in the prior leave of absence is I wrote a poem, and I'm not a poet, but I wrote a poem called Lament for the Old, because maybe I identified with seeing geriatric patients because it seemed like nobody really wanted to deal with them. You know, often not their families, and I, and I wrote a poem about how the medical profession didn't pay much attention to them because, you know, they, they wanted to be heroes. And, and I'm going to read the last stanza to you because it's really ironic because I wrote this when I was 24 and now I'm three times that age. And the last stanza, and I talk about, you know, uh, how people just in the medical profession didn't really want to spend much time with geriatric patients. And the last stanza says, I then took the time to get to know some of these marvelous people, three times my age, who offered a wealth of experience that spanned hundreds of years. What was so obviously missing was someone to share the fullness of the past and to help relieve the loneliness of the future, and maybe someone to give a damn when they died. And so, uh, I think I had written this prior to my seeing this theme. So I think he had that in, in mind about me. And he said, Mark, you've been kicked out. I doubled over. And he said, Mark, you didn't mess up because you're passing everything, but you are messed up. 
But if you get unmessed up, I think the school would be glad they gave you another chance. And I just started crying from his compassion. And then he said to me, and even if you don't get unmessed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything with the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you. Because you have a streak of goodness in you. And we don't grade in medical school. Uh, and you don't know how much the world needs that goodness. And you're not going to know it until you're 35. But you have to make it to your 35. And you deserve to be on this planet. And you're going to let me help you. And then he stood up to the medical school and say, we're going to give this one a second chance. So here's the whole irony of the whole thing, because I, you know, I, I, I took a year off, worked at this place called the Menninger Foundation in Topeka, Kansas, big psychiatric foundation. And it looked like I had a knack to reach schizophrenic farm boys. I, I could reach people. I could connect with people, uh, even though I grew up in a suburb of Boston. And, and here's the thing that's dawned on me is, uh, you know, I came back, finished medical school, did training in psychiatry, and then became a suicide specialist. And I basically paid forward what the dean of students did for me. And recently, I started a company called Michelangelo Mindset, because there's a quote from Michelangelo that's well known, where he says, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set it free. So he saw the Pietas, he saw the statue of David. But what's really been getting to me because at this stage of my life is he saw the David in my future, and the David was me. So he stood up, carved away the medical school, wanting to kick me out. Uh, and I discovered this ability to reach people. And then that's what I did for 30 years with my suicidal patients. And so what I continued to practice then, and I'm now trying to teach the world, how can you see success, happiness, and fulfillment in your future clearly? In, and if the future is a piece of marble, how do you see it clearly and then carve until you set them free, which is what your whole mission is right now. I love that story. I just, I, this is the second time I've heard it and I just love you telling it. Um, you know, the, your skill set is listening, right? You've, you're, you're able to listen and um, in a way that other people can't. And I think that's how you reach people. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But. Well, I, and I think it's a teachable skill. The point is, it has to be, it has to matter to you and be meaningful. And given the focus of what you're doing, you know, uh, 50 something, and let's say they found hopefully a little bit of security and they're looking for something else and they don't know what it is. And so here's the skill is anytime you're in a conversation, and you notice it's stalling, but you're still, you know, and it's not a transactional thing. Uh, what you want to do is pause and imagine that they're listening for something. You may not know what it is, but just being curious what they're listening for and drawing it out of them 
can uh, reboot the conversation. So, for instance, yeah, I was going to say, please give me an example of that. Well, let's say there you are and you're uh, trying to plan a vacation with your partner. And uh, what started out as being exciting, it seems like the planning is stalled. It seems like what started out as shared enthusiasm, uh, your partner somehow doesn't seem to be on board. And you start going through the many destinations, oh, and, and they start to not only not be on board, they say, oh, we've been there. Now, I don't know if I'm in the mood. Or maybe, maybe you know, maybe we sh- uh, shouldn't travel. Now, of course, COVID tra- changes everything. Uh, and so uh, what you might want to do is find out what they're listening for. And one of the ways you can say that is you can say, you know, when we started talking about this, we were both enthusiastic, and now it seems to have switched. And so there, there was something that excited you at the beginning that you don't seem as excited about. And so what are you listening for? And, uh, and for instance, what they might be listening for is how to make this trip better than the previous ones, which weren't all that happy. They may be listening for, you know, we get excited, we uh, design the trip, we spend a lot of money. But what I'm remembering is the last one, we spent a lot of money and, you know, there are times when we go out to dinner and we almost didn't say anything. And it's not because we were madly in love or madly in hate. We just, it was just, it just kind of revealed to us that, you know, we, uh, maybe we don't like the same things. Maybe we don't even like each other. So what I was listening for is, is there a way to make this next trip different than the previous ones? Because this is just like the previous ones where we have some time, we set it aside, we begin to plan, and we have these expectations. And then uh, by the time we get there, we almost always want to leave early. We almost always want to see if we can catch an earlier flight home. And I'm listening for a way to believe that this will turn out differently. So, do you, do you follow what I'm saying? Not, not, absolutely. Not, I'm just making a for instance, but the point is, absolutely. All you have now. Now, I'm just saying what they might say, but right. uh, but but what you can do is you can say, I noticed that we started and you were excited and I was excited, and now we're getting around to the planning. And what I'm noticing is it's getting a little bit stalled. Uh, and maybe it's the money or something we can't afford or whatever. But uh, it seems each conversation we're having is is almost leading to why bother going. And so mm-hmm. I think you're listening for something else that you're not hearing from our conversation or from me. So, Mark, it, say, I mean, a a lot of people they've been together for years or decades do you find that the listening becomes different not as maybe people become sort of um a little tuned out like they think they're listening but they're not well i i think that happens too often uh i'll, I'll share an anecdote that uh uh 
I'm not sure if I shared this on our last podcast, but I've been married 43 years. So it's a pretty good run. And, uh, and I sometimes tweet out these things that people think about. And one of my tweets, uh, and I'm not sure if it was autobiographical, but uh, it was an interesting turn of phrase. And I got a lot of responses on Twitter. I said, um, marriages don't end because we stop loving each other. You know, because you can be devoted to a per, an ex-spouse and help them through cancer. You know, you still sort of love them. So it said, marriages don't end because we stop loving each other. It's because we stop feeling liked by each other. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. And it's, and it's not even it's not it's not even we stop liking the other person. What it is is we look at our mate and we don't put a smile on their face. And the desire to be enjoyable to our mate lights us up. So I'll say that again, because I think it's yeah. very, it's very rich and worth thinking about. So marriages don't end because we stop loving each other, but because we stop feeling liked by each other. So here was a test of it. That's what I want to share. Okay. So, uh, and I wanted to see if that was true for me. So something I noticed is that when I'm, going on an errand and my wife's going on an errand in a separate car, we sometimes see each other. And when we drive by each other, you know, uh, she'll just sort of wave with her hand. Uh, she may not look at me or whatever. But uh, after I tweeted that, we drove by each other a day or two later. And I thought to myself, I am really lucky to be married to that woman. Mm. I am so glad to be married to that woman. Uh, and we were like, you know, cars passing, not in the night, in the middle of a suburb or whatever. But what I realized is I really liked her. Uh, I'm, and hopefully she liked me. But often when I get home, did I remember the milk? I have to change quick because we're going out. Did I know such and such? And so it's very easy when you come home to somehow feeling liked and liking each other can get lost by some of the details and how one of the other partners screwed one of them up. So using, so I'm, so I'm a chapter in the upcoming book, Michelangelo mindset, or how to, how to, how to think like uh, uh, Michelangelo. So Michelangelo marriage is deep inside your relationship Unless down deep you say, I'm really unhappy, and when the kids leave, we'll just get divorced. But, you know, if, if it hasn't reached that end stage of what John Gottman calls contempt, you know, contempt is really the, the end point. But if it hasn't reached that point, if you can think, you know, that deep inside uh, your relationship are two people who really like each other and feel liked, felt liked by the other person. And so how do you carve away everything that gets in the way of that? Now, one of the things I had to carve away is I had that experience, which was very sweet, but I had, even though we're married, I was too shy to tell my wife that. It's a very sweet thing. I mean, I told her about four days later, but it was just, it was, it was so out of habit. It was so out of character to say something that sweet. So what I had to carve away was the shyness. And I was thinking, well, the worst thing she could do is it triggers awkwardness in her or 
or she could be dismissive and say, what does that have to do with anything or, or any of those things? But the point is, uh, just the fact that I was so pleased that I felt it, I didn't really care how she reacted. And when I share, share it with her, uh, she's not capable of cooing, but she flirted with it. It was like, oh, and I'll tell you, I'm still holding on to that, oh, that sweetness. Do you feel like in what you described there, are there gender differences here? Um, you know, like you said, it took you four days to say this. Whereas if this had entered your wife's mind, my guess is she might've said it that night, like the next time she saw you. So like, hey. Well, well here's something that I notice that's really starting to trouble me. Um, uh, alpha energy is great for success. It's not good for closeness. Mm. You know, it's good to have alpha energy. You can build something. You can build a business. You can grow it. You can sell it. You can do whatever. But it's not that good for emotional intimacy. And I actually uh, wrote a blog uh, several years ago called Revenge of the Nerds. And I talked about how a number of the tech giants um, – addicted the world to adrenaline and excitement at the cost of oxytocin and intimacy because they weren't that, you know, in high school, you know, maybe I was excited about a date. They were excited about going to Radio Shack or Heathkit. <laughs> mm -hmm. ah, I got the latest, look, look at my transition board. Look at this thing. And uh, they were so excited they didn't shower, you know, for days. They, they'd see what they could do with it. But what happened is they addicted the world to adrenaline and technology. Mm -hmm. And along with that has come an impatience between people, impatience between men and women, women and men, and mo mothers and children, fathers and children. And, and I don't think it's just coincidental that we're seeing children's uh, a, a real spike in depression, anxiety, suicidality. And I think it's because when teenagers are feeling angst, initially they don't need solution. If the solution works or advice, that's fine. They need to feel a connection. Did I tell you the story about the anorectic patient I had? I don't know what anorectic means. Uh, you know, these are these are these young teenagers who don't eat. Oh, anorexic. Oh, yeah, Anore anorexic. Yes, uh, absolutely. So, did I share that story with you? No, no. Please tell me. Um, so years ago, when I was training in psychiatry at UCLA, uh, they had one of the top eating disorders programs. But in those days, you know, if you were starving yourself, they'd tube feed you. You know, I mean, you know, you, you, mm. you had to, you, you had to live, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and, and I remember I was in the emergency room admitting patients, you know, cause, uh, you know, we, we were on call and, an anorexic or anorectic patient uh, came in. She probably was about 85 pounds. And she looked, she's about five, five, looked really emaciated. Mm. And, you know, and it was clear that she needed to be admitted. And so uh, I could have just left and had the nurses watch her until the people from upstairs came down to bring her upstairs and admit her. 
but I had time. There was no one waiting. And there she was. And she just looked like a, a strong wind could knock her over. And in part of our training, you know, we train in a lot of different modalities, not just, not just medication, not just therapy. You know, we learned a little bit of hypnosis. We learned a little bit of something called guided imagery, visualization, cognitive therapy. And I've always been interested in those things. So I, I said, can I try something with you? And, uh, you know, while we're waiting and, and if it's and if it's bothersome, you know, you can tell me to stop. And it might help calm you down. She said, OK. So I said, you know, you know, get comfortable uh, and put your feet up on a chair and just sort of sit back, close your eyes. And I said, are you right handed or left handed? She said, I'm right handed. I said, uh, what I'd like you to do is close your eyes and just breathe slowly. And I'd like you to put your left hand on top of your stomach and just keep breathing slowly. And I want you to imagine that that left hand is the hand of the mommy you want and need. And we're not here to discuss your mother. When you go upstairs, they'll do a family history. But let's just, you know, let's create something, you know. And, and something was leading me to do this. I mean, I wasn't following the script. And... uh and I said, just breathe in. And I want you to imagine that that mommy is saying to you, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. And so you take these slow breaths, close your eyes and keep doing that. And then I said, now I'd like you to put your right hand on top of your left hand. And the right hand is the right hand of the daddy you always wanted and needed. And I want you to imagine as you're breathing slowly, that that daddy is saying to your mom and you, uh, we're going to get through this. We're all going to be okay. And now I'd like you to just breathe in and we'll alternate. So let's go back. Your eyes are closed. You're breathing slowly. There is the hand, left hand, your mommy's hand saying, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. And take some breaths. And there's the right hand of your dad reassuring your mommy and you, uh, we're going to get through this. We're going to be okay. And just keep breathing that until you can feel a little calmer. Her eyes got a little watery. You know, I could see little tears coming down the sides. Then I get a uh, announcement that the people from upstairs are coming down to bring her upstairs. So uh, when I heard they were approaching, I said to her, I said, I don't know if this is hypnosis or visualization. Your eyes are closed. What I'm going to do is I'm going to count slowly from one to ten. And when we get to around eight, you're going to start flickering your eyes open. And you can remember everything we talked about or remember nothing. It really doesn't matter. In other words, there was no way to fail this. But what you will remember is the feeling, that feeling of that left hand mommy that you always wanted saying, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. And the right hand being that daddy always wanting, wanted saying, uh, we're all going to be okay. We're going to get through this. And I'm going to count slowly. And when we get to eight, you'll start flickering your eyes and you'll start opening them. And then you'll look around and you'll be back here. So we did that. And then we get to seven and eight. She starts flickering her eyes. She starts looking around. And she looks totally relaxed. And then the people come in and say, okay, you know, we're here to bring... Joan, we'll call it Joan upstairs. So she gets up to leave. And I said, you know, it's going to work out for you. And she looked at me. 
she said, uh, can I go to the cafeteria? I'm starved. <laughs> so do you follow what I'm saying about the need for that empathic connection? Yes. Before you start, let, uh, we're going to measure what you're eating. Let's measure your calories. Let's make sure you have to be a certain amount or we'll take away the internet. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, wow. I love that story. You're a great storyteller, Mark. Well, I have a few stories. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. Uh, so these, uh, uh, so let's segue into em empathic connection in, you know, long-term relationships. People are 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that. Um, I'm writing an article about, uh, you know, I, the title will have the name Alpha in it, but it's about fixing relationships. It, it might be intimacy for alphas or something. Uh, mm. uh, oh, here's the title. I, I haven't finished it. It's going to be called Alpha Bet two words. And the idea is, if you're an alpha person who's very successful, I'm betting that you won't take this bet. But you might. And the bet is this, that you go up to your partner and say, have I ever made you feel not worth listening to? Uh, awful about yourself um, or so lonely you could feel it. Mm. Have I ever made you feel not worth listening to? Um, uh, awful about yourself or lonely that was palpable. Why do you think it's difficult for an alpha to say that? Because if you say it transactionally, it's an insult to the person who you made feel that way. So it won't land as sincere. Because the purpose of it is to, uh, is to surface Again, the Michael O, the David in the marble, you want to be able to surface deep feelings they may have of hurt and anger and resentment. And every time they brought up something about any of those things, you as the alpha have gotten defensive or you've talked them down. Oh, you're just being crazy. Stop being so emotional. So you may trigger uh, uh so you're, but in this case, you're inviting them to actually express the feelings with the goal of validating their feelings. And so that's why I think some alphas won't take the bet. Because if you do it correctly, they're going to start crying. They're going to look away. Uh, and if they do, you've struck gold because if they do, you say to them a um, couple things. 
why'd you put up with me? Or uh, you deserve better and I'm going to fix that. I'm sorry. Do you, do you follow me? So what Absolutely. you're doing is you're, you're just enabling them to get something off their chest that they may have said in the heat of anger. And then because of the anger and the emotion, you, you shut them down. You're not making any sense. What do you mean you're lonely? We spend time together. You know, yeah, yeah. We watch your stupid love island together. <laughs> well, but let's go to the so it, let's go to the alpha mindset. So for for the alpha, either male or female, who says this, that's a very high risk thing. You you have to feel really secure in yourself to put yourself in that. Position. Totally. That, that's why I'm starting out. I don't think you're going to take the bet. You know, you, you think you're a strong person. Exactly. I've, you know, I don't think you're going to take the bet. And then I'll say, but one of the reasons you might take the bet is you're, uh, if you can enable them to get something off their chest that they've been trying to in various ways, but every time they did it and they were agitated, you'd shut them down. Or you, or you, or, or you diminish them and say, you know, you're not talking rational. So, uh, so yes, don't take the bet. But the point is, now I, now I think a person, and again, I don't want to get overly diagnostic, but I think a person who truly has autism, or is truly on the spectrum, you know, won't get this. And one of the reasons they won't get it is, you know. It doesn't make any sense because my intention is always to make them feel good. Well, do you understand how these ways can make them feel bad? Uh, uh, yes, but I don't do those because my intention. Uh, I was seeing a couple, this must be 20 years ago. And the mother said to the father, and the father's a little bit on the spectrum, not full bore, but, you know, you know, sort of an alpha Uh not an intentionally bad person, but just sort of clueless. And the mother said to the father, uh, we'll, make, we'll change the, the daughter's name. Uh, you better see Dr. Goulston with Jane. Because Jane was telling mom, I hate dad. I just hate him. He's, you know, he, he, uh, he's so clueless. He's so such and such. I just hate him. Uh, and so, uh, and she didn't want to come in. Jane didn't want to come in, the daughter. So they come in. And at that time, I had an L-shaped sofa. And there was Jane tucked into the middle of the L, you know, with her arms crossed, looking down. And there was the dad just wondering what the problem was. And, and I'm somewhat of an articulate intuitive. And so sometimes I can read something that's happened without someone telling me. And so I wanted to get Jane engaged because she didn't want to be there. I said, uh, uh, Jane, what's it like when you and your dad have a conversation and it starts to get sort of loud and you scream at him, get out, get out, get out. And you, and you uh, tell him to close the door. And when he leaves your bedroom, you, you flip him the finger. And she, she looked at me like, how did you know that? I mean, she didn't tell me that. But I was reading in that there were probably those things that escalates, get out of my room. And, you know, and it's not unusual for a teenager to flip off the parent. 
And so the fact that I understood her feelings, and I knew that without her telling me, she started sobbing. I mean, she was almost dry heaving. And I'll never forget it. So the dad who was sitting on one, you know, one uh, uh, portion of the couch while Jane was sitting in the corner, he starts looking to his side at her out of his left, uh, out of his eye. Uh, and he looks at me and then he looks at her and she's just crying like this. Oh. And then he looks at me and then he looks at her and then a tear starts to come down his one of his eyes. And we'll call him John. I'll say, what is it, John? And what was happening is Jane was having a primal experience. And what it was is she felt felt by me. Mm. Not understood. She felt felt. And Mm. I wasn't judging her. I wasn't telling her that was bad to, you know, flip off her dad. So she felt felt. So she just, and so he looks at her and there's a tear under his eye. And he looks at me and his eyes are like a deer in the headlights. He said, my daughter, who I love more than anything, is in pain. And I think it has something to do with me. Mm -hmm. Wow. Can you picture that? 100%. You know, and the, the language that you used there, Mark, you said that you felt her feelings. Did I get that right? Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I've heard that everyone wants to be seen, everyone wants to be heard, and you just up to the level. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants their feelings felt by the other. Yeah, the, see, the reason being is when you feel felt, uh, something called oxytocin goes up. Mm-hmm. And when oxytocin goes up, which is the bonding hormone, stress agitation goes down. One of the reasons we cry at tearjerker movies is because we identify with a conflict in the movie. And then when the conflict gets resolved, we cry because that's the ache in us to have it resolved in our life. I'll share an anecdote with you. I think You'll either like this or love this. Uh, If I was a betting man, it'll be somewhere in between. So, but I can't use this anymore because we baby boomers, we've aged out. You know, we need to walk off a plank and go away for good. But about 15 years ago, when we were still relatively relevant, uh, I remember I, I would do these programs that would occasionally have a lot of, you know, mostly males in the audience. It was a business audience, whatever. And, and yet I was talking about listening and whatever. And I did this exercise where, and there'd be mixed generations at tables. There'd be baby boomers. There'd be some Gen Xers. I think they may not have been millennials because it was about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. But there were Gen Xers and, you know, maybe a few younger people and baby boomers. And I said, I want to do an exercise to show you what I'm trying to demonstrate. I said, I want you Gen Xers to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show a movie clip, and I want you Gen Xers to look at the baby boomer men. And the baby boomer men, I want you to look at the movie clip. And, uh, But I don't want you Gen Xers to look at the movie clip. I want you to look at the baby boomers. And so, you know, I, I do strange exercises like this with audiences. 
And so we do this. And I show the ending of the movie Field of Dreams, where Kevin Costner says to his dad, want to have a catch? Pretty iconic movie. You know, and it, and it represents all the the aches between sons and dads to somehow connect and and to and not only for our dads to love us, but if our dads didn't get to live out their dreams to help them live out their dreams. You know, I, I want to help my dad go from the angry, frustrated person to the person who fulfilled his dreams, because then if he did, maybe he'd come and love me. <laughs> so in Field of Dreams, I think you you know what I'm talking about. So I show the clip and the baby boomers are sobbing like crazy. <laughs> they're, they're sobbing and the, and the Gen Xers are staring at them like, what the hell happened? What is going on here? And I said, what happened is you just saw a, uh, we just marinated the baby boomer in oxytocin <laughs> because many of them have that feeling that they wanted to connect with their dads and never did. Mm. See, and, and, and here now segueing back, segging back to relationships. Yeah. One of the reasons women will say, don't give me advice or solutions is because when they're sharing something, they want to just feel less alone in the feeling. They want to feel felt by you because if they feel felt by you, their oxytocin goes up, their cortisol goes down, their blood flow goes up to their upper brain, and then they can give themselves the advice they need. Right. But what happens instead is we thwart them because they scare us. You know, they're, they're venting and, and we say, get a hold of yourself. And that makes it worse. That increases the cortisol. Here's an interesting tack. Okay. Yeah. So if you're getting into an argument with a partner, and, and you're the more analytical, you might not be alpha, but you're the more analytical, logical, can't we be calm about this? The FUD crud technique, which is in my I have a book called talking to crazy, you know, how to how to deal with people when they're driving you crazy. This is not about mental illness. It's about you know, how to calm people down. And so the FUD crud technique is, imagine that person saying something to you. And normally, because you'd be scared, you say, calm down, let's talk it through. Come on, let's take a break. It's going to be okay. Uh, now, I'm not saying that's awful. That's better than berating them and saying you're crazy. Uh, but the way the FUD crud works is you let them vent that, let them pause, and, and you say to them, you really sound frustrated, and I think you're holding back. Woo. They're going to go, what? <laughs> oh, you say uh, you sound frustrated. And I think you're holding back because I think you're really upset and disappointed, too. That's, oh, the that's, that's such a ninja move. It is. It is ninja on steroids. And they're going to say <laughs> what you could say. And see, you can bring up frustration because everybody's frustrated. But if you say you sound upset, it triggers people. I am not upset. You sound angry. I am not angry. But you can say, you sound frustrated, and I think you're holding back. What? Yeah, I think you're not only frustrated, you're upset and disappointed. So can you fill in all of those things, and maybe we can get through this in a way that we better than we usually do? So you let them talk about what they're frustrated about, and you ask them to go a little deeper. So part of, uh, I have something called surgical empathy. So they talk about what they're frustrated about. 
you listen for a word like you never, you blah, 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 blah. They finish that. You could say, say more about the never. Ah, ah I see. Uh, uh, and so you, what you want to do is peel the layers of an onion off. But when you finally get to, you know, I'll bet you're disappointed, disappointed in me, disappointed that we're stuck in this situation again. I don't know, disappointed in yourself. What's that about? But by the time you're talking about what they're disappointed about, it's much calmer. That's brilliant. That takes a lot of, uh, it takes a lot of courage to say something like that. Um, well, yeah, look, I'm saying a lot of things where you say, I'm a, I'm a chicken shit mark on these things. No, <laughs> I, look, no, just let them settle in and you'll be in a conversation. And then hopefully you'll say, okay, Mark, what do I got to lose? This one's for you. And you'll try it out. You'll screw it up yeah. and then you'll get it right. But can you see how yeah. these are all ways to de-escalate? Absolutely. I think, I think they're brilliant. Um, I think that you know, listening to the, the various sort of ways that one can respond, there's the deny, like you're crazy, or um, just sort of silence and like, let, okay, that's a little better. But then next level is to invite and say, you know, I think you're disappointed. And, and, then you, and then you up the ante and you say, I think you're holding back. There's more. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can fiddle around with them. But in practice, that sequence seems to work because the frustration gets them talking. Mm. The upset is really, uh, you, uh, you could say, and, and I'll bet you're feeling angry, but angry is such an inflammatory word that upset is better. And they talk about what they're upset. And, you, and again, you don't defend yourself in any way. This is all a way to just draw everything off that they've been waiting to get off their chest. Uh, what happens if in the relationship, we'll say, the, I mean, this isn't always the case, but the, the man is the alpha. Um, and then the woman, seeing that the man is not behaving well, something's going on there. And she says to him, um, you sound frustrated. Um, maybe you're holding back. Maybe you're disappointed. Can we talk about this? How, I, how would you expect him to react? Um, I think it could work in both directions because, mm. it, you know, it, it, they're regular, normal words. You know, if you think about it, frustrated, upset, what you really want to get to is disappointed. Because mm. disappointed right. is, is a softer conversation. Is disappointed related to shame? Um, disappointed in oneself is that is that is that shame? It can be a little of it, but I think what it's really related to is huge levels of hurt and sadness that you don't want to feel. Hmm. So someone taught me about disappointment. A fellow named Maury Sheckman. He said to me, "This was the most. This is in the top three profound insights that I've ever learned from someone." He said, um, one of the things that causes people to avoid conflict is that most people do not want to admit to themselves how deeply disappointed they are about things, because intuitively, people are afraid 
If I admit how disappointed I am in my job, I'll have to quit, but I need the job. If I admit how disappointed I am in my partner, we'll have to get a divorce, but I don't want to, I don't want to get a divorce. If I admit how disappointed I am in my kid, I'll be this parent who doesn't like his kid. If I admit how disappointed I am in myself, maybe I'll have to end it all. So intuitively, he says, people are afraid to just admit it and feel it. And he said, the way people deal with the way people avoid disappointment, avoid disappointment, not express it, is they either shut down or get angry. And I said, isn't that an expression of the disappointment? He said, no, 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 it, it's an avoidance of it, because down deep, people don't want to admit that they're disappointed. And then he did an experiment with me, you know, he had told, you know, I had told him that, you know, my dad died in 94, 95. And, you know, he and my brothers, uh, he, he wasn't that close to my brothers or I because he could be kind of critical. He was probably he could be a little bit probably moody and depressed. And uh, and then he said, tell me about your dad. You know, you had once mentioned that you still had some issues. And I said, well, you know, he did the best he could. I, he was better than his father, depression age. I think he was always worried about earning a living. And then uh, uh, Maury said to me, uh, uh, so are you disappointed in your dad? Uh, well, no, because he did the best he could. And now that I understand how frightening it is, can be to earn a living, you know, I really understand that. So I don't think I'm disappointed. Yeah. But were you disappointed in your dad? And he kept doing this. And then at one point I said, I guess I was disappointed. And then we went another round and I said, I was disappointed in my dad. And then he said, don't say another word. Stop. And then he said, say it again. I was disappointed in my dad. And then, you know, my internal worry is if I admitted how disappointed I was in him, maybe in my mind, I would not want to have anything to do with him. No memories. Mm. But when he stopped me, and I just said, I was disappointed in my dad. What happened is it didn't ruin my connection to my dad. What happened is I got this flood of just how sad it was that it worked out that way for both him and me. Do you follow me? It, and, and it wasn't feeling ashamed. It was the shame of the waste that it had to be that way. Yeah. When down deep, we loved each other and what came out, you know, was kind of mangled. And, and we, as a result, we didn't really get to feel close. And so what happened is I felt this profound sense of sadness and hurt, but that was healing. I, I hadn't ever really considered that. I, this idea of disappointment and the, the, and that the shame is the shame of a loss of time and loss right. of connection of the loss of what could have been totally yeah uh yours you you have a profound way mark of just simplifying the most complex convoluted gordian knot of things you you have this way of just it's like alexander with the knife like i'm not going to untie the knot i'm just going to cut the knot off <laughs> it's really wonderful well, you know, part of it is, I think, being a suicide specialist for many years, I had to develop a language that is what I call experience near versus experience distant. Mm. 
So experience near language, when you hear it, you feel it and understand it at the same time and you connect. Right. Experience distant can be a little bit jargony. Yeah. So when I was dealing with patients who were suicidal and hanging by a thread, I couldn't use clinical jargon because I'd listen into their eyes and I'd see them pull away. Look, I don't want to put the pressure on people. You got to get it right. I think if the intention is right, Mm. you can screw up. But if the intention is with my suicidal patients, like the statue of David, I know you can't feel hope or believe there's any hope, but uh, I can see the hope in you, which means you have a future. Mm. And the future is not glad that you didn't kill yourself. The future is you're glad to be alive. And I can see glimpses of it. I just need to be able to introduce you to it Mm. so that you can see it and feel it. Because if you can see glimpses of it's good to be alive, you might not need to die to take away the pain. You know, I know in America, maybe a lot of parts of the world, there are these deaths of despair that essentially what I'm hearing from you come out of profound sense of disappointment. Well, it's interesting you use the word despair because uh, uh, after Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade died by suicide, I wrote a post on Medium called Why People Kill Themselves, It's Not Depression. Mm. So it got 500,000 views in about two weeks. And because of the title, it's not depression. And I said, uh, there's hundreds of millions of people who are depressed who don't kill themselves. Mm-hmm. There's hundreds of millions of people lose their job and it contributes to it. And I'm not, I'm not saying it, it doesn't contribute to it. I said, but in my work with suicidal patients, my observation is at the end, they die from despair. And if you break the word despair into des P-A-I-R, they feel unpaired with reasons to live, helpless, without a future, hopeless, worthless, useless, meaningless, purposeless, pointless. And they pair with death to take the pain away when, like a slot machine, all those lesses are lining up. And so they feel felt by death. They pair with death. But if you can pair with them so that they feel felt, they may let go of death as the way to take away their pain and grab on to feeling felt. Wow. Uh, This has been a gift. Um, I really appreciate your time today. I I know you're busy. You got a lot going on. And, uh, your wisdom is um, it's remarkable, um, really very powerful. So um, you uh, here, we, we, let's give you a plug. There's a book behind you. What does the book say? I have a book called Just Listen. It's in 28 languages. Um, and uh, also, here's a plug that I don't usually make. Uh, I have a, uh, an audio course at Himalaya Learning. And it's called Defeating Self-Defeat. And my first book was called Get Out of Your Own Way. And that's been a bestseller for 
since 1996. And it was just published in Russian and it became a bestseller there. So defeating self-defeat are, I think, 13 narrative uh, little mini courses. And I'm just sharing it with you because if you got this far in this podcast and I haven't bored the crap out of you, uh, and you and you and you find that how I talk, the way I make sense of things is appealing to you, I think you would like the defeating self-defeat course. And if you go to Himalaya.com forward slash defeat, Himalaya.com forward slash defeat, it'll take you to the course. And I believe it's still if you use the word defeat, I think it's capital D-E, all, all capitals. If you use that in the, pro- in the promotional code, you can listen to it for free. Thank you for that, Mark. What are you doing for the weekend? It's a holiday weekend. I, I, I'm blessed. I love my family. I, I have grandchildren. I get to see my grandchildren every day. Um, now that I've discovered that uh, I like my wife and she likes me, I look forward to going home. And uh, what are you going to do? Uh, I, I've learned, I've been practicing not working, which is uh, sort of a learned skill for me. Uh, and I've been practicing doing one thing at a time. And, and so the one thing I'm going to do this weekend is we, we have this new place that we're, we're fixing up and I'm going to take a paintbrush and I'm going to paint all the baseboards with um, semi-gloss paint. And I'm not going to listen to podcasts. Mm. I'm not going to like try and like pack my brain with more information or figure more things out. I'm going to give my brain a rest and just concentrate on painting. That's great. Now, something you might do. Someone shared with me about uh, there was a woman named Anna, and I think she has a site called Anna Runs America. And she ran across America for veterans charities. And someone asked her, what kept you from quitting? And she said, as I was running, I imagined I was a blind person seeing things for the first time. So I'd run by a tree and a a palm tree, or I'd run by a a store. Oh, that's a mom and pops. And she said, but imagining that you're blind and you're seeing for the first time, she said, I I was just able to take in the wonder of it all. So you're going to take in the wonder of the paint and you're going to, you're going to, and then you're going to sniff some, see if you can get high. (laughs) (laughs) My teenage years are over. I'm sorry. Uh, You're going to go straight to the glue. What can I tell you? (laughs) Yeah. Oh gosh. Mark, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us today. And and I hope you have a wonderful weekend with your wife. I will. And, and uh, thank you for the beginning of the friendship that we have started, whether you know it or not. Wow. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate your friendship and I appreciate your time on the show today. Take care now. Thank you everyone for joining us on the show today. It's great to have you with us. If you have any questions for Dr. Goulston or comments or questions on any other podcasts we've done or anything you want to know about that you would like us to play on the air, we would love to have your voice on the air too with us. Our call-in number is 801-871-5291. That's 801-871-5291. Leave us a Google voice message and um, we'll play it on the air and we'll do our best to answer your questions. Or if you're feeling like sending some email, david at superage.com. I'll get back to you directly and promptly. Um, 
If you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends about it. Please do that for us. Um, we would like all of your friends to listen to this. Um, we would also love for you to leave a rating, if you can, on whatever platform you listen to this. Um, and leave us a comment. We'd love those. Um, we're starting to get some really nice comments. So that would be great to add yours to that um, comment list, too. Next week, we have a really interesting show. We have someone coming on who is not so happy with social media. Amazing. And she's done something about it. She's created a new chat-based, moderated social media platform. Um, it's specifically designed for people our age. So you're going to want to catch that. That'll be next week on the Super Age Podcast. Until then, everyone, have a wonderful week. And we'll catch you then. Bye for now.